Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. As we continue to worship, would you take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Samuel 27. If you are a guest of us here this morning, we're in a longer series entitled The Life of David as we're tracing the contours of David's life through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We come now to 1 Samuel chapter 27. During the holiday season last Christmas, we had to take two vehicles to see my mom and my dad. Danielle and our two youngest sons were in front. Me and my youngest son were trailing in the the, the rear vehicle there. I was driving his vehicle, and we we're headed to where it's home for us, which is the our home for me is the uh, suburb outside of the Jackson, Mississippi area there. And right in front of us was this 18-wheeler that had a blowout on I-20, and the the shreds and the remnants of that tire come back toward me. And so I'm having to dodge and not run over. And as I missed one of the, the shreds that, of, of that tire that had been blown, I ran right over another really long piece that wrapped under the undercarriage of the vehicle and came back out. What I thought was the back of the vehicle, loud impact, obviously. It was kind of a scary moment. I was glad I was driving and not my oldest son in that moment. So I try to just feel the vehicle as you have done something maybe similar to this before and to see if there were any immediate differences in the way that it was driving. And I didn't notice that instantaneously, 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And then the check tire pressure light comes on. I happen to be fairly close to Meridian, Mississippi. That's about halfway to where we're headed. And I pulled off and instantly saw, not that I had a flat tire, but the, the remnant of that tire had come up and it had impacted the outer wall of the front driver's side tire. And there was a whelp and it was protruding out. I realized that, you know, given another minute or given two minutes, that it was no doubt that this was going to be a, a blowout on the interstate. So we were there at a gas station. I was able to get the spare out. We were able to change the tire, get back in the vehicle, and limp along to our destination, which is usually an hour and a half away. It took us longer than that, driving with the spare. But it's one of these life lessons. You, you know, you're talking to your son about, you know, changing a tire, trying to show him, okay, there's a spare. We've got to make sure it's a spare. It has enough of the tire pressure in it here, and this is how we're going to do this. And then we've got to talk about these warning lights, that come on. And so one of the things that I was trying to impress upon him in that moment was you, you just cannot ignore these lights. Even if the vehicle feels as if nothing is a matter, there's a reason that this light is coming on. Now, sometimes those lights are just routine maintenance reminders. Sometimes those lights are just telling you, you need to get your oil changed. You need to get your tires rotated. 
Sometimes those lights are coming on because the transmission is, is, is got an issue with it here. Or, or you have a cool fall morning and the, the pressure of those tires have, have been affected by the coolness of that morning. Other times, you've got a flat there and you can't ignore these lights. There, there's something going on. Even if the lights are coming on because it's an electrical malfunction, there's something that you must do with this and you must heed these lights. When we walk through the narratives of Scripture, sometimes we see embedded in those narratives warning lights. We, we, see, we see as people are traveling down the road that God has given them, lights of their soul that, that indicate something is malfunctioning here. Someone is going off course and off the way. We come now to a section of David in 1 Samuel chapter 27 through 2 Samuel chapter 1 that is called by scholars the ascension section. This is going to be the ultimate downfall of Saul and, and the rising of David to take his place as the anointed king. But here's the thing. By the time the mantle of the kingship is upon David, he is coming into this role spiritually limping along. And there are two warning lights that, that are going to go forth in 1 Samuel chapter 27 that, that David misses. And my prayer is, is these lights are not going to be foreign lights for all of us that are in this room. And, and if we ignore them, we ignore them to the downfall of our own heart and to the harm of those that we love, maybe live with, work with. The lights are on for a reason. So let's see those lights in God's word. Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, not just David, but he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moab the king of Gath. I want you to see here the first warning light is the lack of a God-centered perspective. And we're going to see this in the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 27. So I just want to preview what's coming before us here. It comes on the heels of 1 Samuel chapter 26 where David has another encounter with Saul where he has the opportunity to kill him. The first one comes in 1 Samuel chapter 24 where David is in the back of a cave that Saul comes in to, and the men are girding David to, to go forth and to kill his enemy here that has been hounding him and chasing him. And he doesn't do that. He stays his hand because this is the Lord's anointed. He will not put his hand upon him. Fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 26 that precedes our chapter here. And once again, we have David and one of his men that, that come up upon Saul as he's sleeping. And it is in this moment that this man says, here's a spear, be done with it, kill him. And once again, he stays his hand. He will not put his hand upon the Lord's anointed here. Now, Saul realizes this. And at the end of chapter 26, they're going their separate ways. Saul is blessing David. So you would think we've got a spiritual high point here, right? We've got a place where, where David should, should be moving forward, understanding something of what is his inheritance that is coming to him. But instead, we are greeted in verse 1 with David saying to his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me 
than to go live in the arch enemies of my people, the Philistines. So he's retreating here. He is saying to his heart, well, in the original language of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, verse 1, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, it actually literally can be translated, I will be swept away by Saul. David is overcome with fear, and it has drowned out his faith. He is overcome with doubt. He doesn't trust the voices of God's people that have pointed him to the place that Saul will not harm him. Saul cannot uh, kill him. He has had the words of Samuel who anointed him, that has undergirded him, but now he's not listening to those voices. He's had Jonathan in chapter 22 remind him that God is with him. He's had his own recent wife in chapter 25 Abigail, who reminds him of these promises here, but he drowns out the promises of God and he is overwhelmed with doubt and despair. We can imagine. I mean, he has been on the run now for years. So, of course, there is a mental, a physical, an emotional, a spiritual weight. Of course, we can justify why in the middle of the night he probably is waking up in a cold sweat, once again crying out, as he wakes himself up thinking in that nightmare that he's having every night that Saul has come upon him and is going to kill him. Of course, we can understand that. We can understand where he is and all the weight of pressure that has been upon him now for years. But in this moment, David's doubt wins. David's fear wins. And he says to himself, there is no hope. Now, David's been given an order to, to, to stay in the land, to stay in Israel. He's going to be the king of these people here. But instead, he is going to go sojourn. He's going to go live in the foreign land of Philistia, in this region called Gath here. And what he is doing, in essence, is instead of going to Mobile, he is going to Florence. He's going to Huntsville. He's going the opposite direction of where he should go. And there are going to be, well, there are going to be drastic consequences for this that we're going to see. I heard it said one time that a man is the only animal that runs faster when he's lost his way. That we speed up when we're off course. And David is off course here. And you can be off course also. You can go through your life just as David is doing in this very passage here listening to the voices of pessimism and listening to the voices of doubt, listening to the voices of the world and not feasting upon the truth of God's word. And when we do that, there is an, there's an outcome that happens in our attitude and our actions here that is exemplified in David's very words here. He is, he is overwhelmed with pessimism. There's no way that there's hope for me. Saul will certainly destroy me. He will certainly sweep me away. Now, your details will be different, no doubt, but the same temptation, when we, when we move away from the truth of God's word and we're overwhelmed by the circumstances around us and the feelings within us, oftentimes it will manifest itself in this doubt, despair, and pessimism where we think the worst about what is ahead, we think the worst about those that are around us, our family and our friends, and we'll begin, we'll, we'll begin to live in this, in this navel-gazing tunnel vision, understanding 
of what really is reality. And this can happen. Well, it happens to David and it can happen to you. You know what another path could have been for David? Another path could have been the very words of this pilgrim in this Psalm, Psalm 42, that says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore. Therefore, I remember you. I say to God, verse 9, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a daily wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My friends, don't miss this. This is the contrast to David's heart speech. This is the context, the contrast to David's self-talk. David's self-talk is one of pessimism and is one of believing the lies and overwhelmed by his feelings. And here we have, we don't know all the details of this pilgrim who longs to be back in Jerusalem. We don't know all the details of the enemies that he faces and the taunts that are coming his way, but he, he, he feels forgotten. Doubt has come his way. He, he knows what it is to be scared in this moment. He knows what it is to feel resentment in this moment. He knows what it is to feel joyless in this moment. But in this moment, what wins out, he speaks to his heart, he speaks to his soul, and he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? He, he, he speaks to himself a greater truth, a truth that is beyond our feelings. And we have to do this, church. Your feelings will not always lead you to the right destination. Some, sometimes we feel as if God has forgotten us. Sometimes we feel as if it is hopeless before us. Sometimes the circumstances of our life are such that it leads us to feelings and feelings that are actually not true. Feelings that God has forsaken us and forgotten about us. Feelings that God is not for us, but actually we might feel as if everyone's against us and we might begin to wonder, is even God against us? And it's in those moments we've got to talk to ourselves. And we've, we've got to say, soul, heart, listen to something that is beyond what you feel. Listen to something that is beyond what you, can, what you perceive before you. We have to be anchored in something that goes further and deeper down, and that is the anchor of what really is true, that sometimes has to contradict our feelings, has to contradict what we see before us. And we go deeper down into the Word. We go deeper down into faith. We go to deeper down into trust with Him. And sometimes we have to say that to our hearts. What are you feasting on, church? Are you feasting on the, the, the junk food of this world, if we do that, it will lead us over time to be spiritually unhealthy and we will find ourselves where our attitudes and our actions are leading us to this inward pessimism. There's no doubt it doesn't always do that, but oftentimes it does do that. And it is an indication that we're famished on the word. We're spiritually anemic here. And we must go to the word to meditate upon the word, to feast upon the word, 
to sing the word. I mean, even yesterday morning, God was reminding me of this very truth. There's a song that is sort of a recent song called Gratitude. Brandon Heath is a passion. There's several, several different bands of, are singing the song. And uh, some of you are familiar with the chorus line of it where it says, in this moment, come on my soul, don't you get shy on me, lift up your voices, you've got a line within, when when, uh, within your lungs or inside of your lungs. I first heard that song a couple months ago or maybe a year ago or however long it was, and there was just something about that that just kind of irked me in some respects. And there was something about me with that song that I just thought, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure about this whole line inside of your, you know, get up and, I mean, it just get up and praise the Lord. I mean, there was just sort of a spiritual cheerleading thing going on. And I, I was sort of ranting about this with my wife, and she's really wise. And she's like, David, I, I actually think that you've got a problem with a Psalm 42, actually, right? Right here, because that's the gist of this. And she didn't say it that way, but she was just reminding me. And yesterday morning, I was, uh, I was running, and I have uh, the, this Bible app that I use, and then I have uh, this playlist that I was listening to after that. And this song came on, and it was just this deep emotional reminder to me as I heard this song, I think in light of what David didn't do. He has a lack of a God-centered perspective. You know what you will not find in 1 Samuel 27? You will not find one time David praying to God. You will not find one time David mentioning God. You will not find God mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Actually, this is, we can say, a godless chapter. And it is going to lead to godless actions. And this is true for you and it's true for me. We, we can be believers who function as atheists, as if there isn't a God who is leading us and guiding us and supporting us and undergirding us. And we can live a life and, and be led in such a way that our feelings are leading us to a place that ultimately is not healthy. I, I love the words of a former pastor at Westminster Chapel in London for decades, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. He talks about the importance of talking to yourself. And he says, talk to yourself. And though the devil will suggest that because you do not feel you are not a Christian, say, no, I do not feel anything. But whether I feel or not, I believe the scriptures. I believe God's word is true. And I will stay my soul on it. I will believe it. I believe in it. Come with me. David does the opposite. Fear consumes his faith. Doubt drowns out his belief, and he believes in the lies that are before him, and that can happen to you and me. It is a spiritual warning light, but that's not the only one in this passage. Notice not only a lack of a God-centered perspective, but notice also a callousness of our heart. Notice the rest of this, well, godless chapter. David lived with Achish at Gath. Verse 3, he and his men every man with his household and David with his two wives. Now understand what's going on here. We got 600 of David's mighty men, this little militia. Well, they've got wives now and they've got children now. So it's more than 600 that are coming over to this foreign land. David's got his two wives, Hinnom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's wife. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul's like, I'm not going there. So it's kind of a mission success for David in one way, but a mission failure in another way. We're going to see that. Then David said to Achish, this foreign leader in the region of Gath, 
the enemies of God's people. If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was 16 months, a year and four months. Now David and his men, they went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Malachites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And would you believe what we read here? David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, not where he went, but he would say against the Negev of Judah. That's his people. He's lying to this king saying, I'm attacking the very people that I've come from here. He's got this cover going on. Or against the Negev of the Jeremalites or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. Hideous actions here, heinous actions here, covering his backside here. He's covering himself because he doesn't want this king to know what he's doing under his very purview in his land, lest they should tell us about and say, David has done this. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. We, we have got a warning light going off, if you don't understand this. David has gone into a land that is the enemies of the people of God. God has told him not to do this. We have seen what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He sojourns over there. He's trying to get out of the way of Saul. And he has to pretend to be crazy. He shows up again and the king receives him. What's the difference? Well, David brings 600 men. This is an opportunist king who says, maybe this guy and all these people can help me. He's got to pay some kind of plunder and tribute to me for living on the land. David says, how about this arrangement? I don't want to live in your palace here. How about you give us some, some country land where me and my people can live? And David is doing this because he doesn't want the king to know what he is doing under the purview of his kingship. And so David goes on these raids and he takes not just the oxen, but he kills men and women. And these are actual men and women. These are sons and daughters. These, these, are, these are wives and husbands. And David does this to, to, to really cover himself. And he lies to the king in such a way the king thinks to himself, I've got someone that is on my team here. And when you flip over to the next chapter, you have this king saying to David, I'm going to go into the land of Judah and we're going to fight against them. How about you join me? Do you see the complicity of David here? We got this foreign king saying, this is my bodyguard. We leave the chapter on a cliffhanger because at chapter, chapter 28, verse 2, this king is saying to David, come in with me and we're going to take those people down. And David is in this moment trying to get out of this. And we don't know what's going to happen because the camera lens is going to move from David and go back to Saul as Saul goes to the witch of Endor. And we see his fall before us here. 
but it leaves us, well, it leaves us uncomfortable. You, you should be uncomfortable right now. This is an uncomfortable chapter. I mean, David is a man after God's own heart, right? He's the writer of the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We like that, David. We like cute, cuddly little David who's out there with the sheep, doesn't even get the invitation to be a part of the anointing for the next king. And all of his brothers are there and they're all, uh, you know, a foot taller than him. And they're all good looking and they're all Mr. Fill-in-the-blank high school. That's his brothers. And David's this underdog story. David's a Rocky Balboa, right? He, he gets to take this little slingshot and, and kill this giant called Goliath. We like that, David. But here we look into the pages of David and he's not this cute little underdog of a biblical character. He's a conniving, calloused, deceiving butcherer of people. And we wonder, what do we do with this? And you can make a couple mistakes here. You can make a hermeneutical mistake. That just, you can make a mistake of interpreting the Bible. And you can make the mistake that everything that is in the Bible God approves of. That everything that is in the Bible, God approves of. That he approves of everything that is described in the Bible. And that more than that, you can make the mistake to think that everything that is in the Bible is prescribed for us to do. But that's not the case. Oftentimes in the Bible, we just see descriptions of the errors of God's servants. You should read 1 Samuel chapter 27 and say, Hey, I know one thing. David's not the hero of this story. Now, we want David to be the hero. We, we want our stories to have heroes that we can emulate and model our lives under. We want David to be spiritually Cloroxed, to come out as a spotless hero that we can emulate and we can follow here. But we have to be reminded that God works in and he works through flawed leaders. And he is writing a story even in the midst of these heinous acts, in spite of the faithlessness, in spite of the error of his servants. Now, what I've got to convince you of is you share the tendencies of David. Now, I know, I know you don't think you do. I, and of course, we don't share the setting. Of course, we're not living in this ancient Near Eastern world with these nomadic people here. Of course, we don't have 600 men. Of course, we're not running from Saul. Of course, we're not in these circumstances here. But what we want to say is, whoa, look how bad he is and look how good I am. We want, to, we want to be able to look back in history and have 2020 vision of just how sinful everybody was, else was, and then to be able to look at ourselves and take off the glasses and to sort of self-justify. We've never been in a time, and maybe all of human history, that we would be able to look back with such clarity and say, well, if I lived in the 17th century, or if I lived in the 18th century, if I lived in the 19th century, if I lived in the beginning of the 20th century, I would have done that. I would have been complicit in that. I wouldn't have gone down that road. 
We, we, we are able to see the errors of our forefathers with great clarity while ignoring the seeds of sin that dwell in our own hearts. Now you can think all you want to that, that what David is doing here is far removed from anything that could be in your heart. And of course, this is heinous. Of course, this is hideous. Of course, God disapproves of this. Of course, God creates all people in his image. And murder is condemned by God's word. And these are heinous acts that are committed by David's servant or by God's servant David in this, mo in this moment here. But don't, don't think that you can't live a life, well, a life that lacks a God-centered perspective. Don't think that you can't live a life that over time has a calloused heart. Don't think that your pride and your prejudice will not make you lose, well, lose your, your sense in that moment. And lose an understanding of what is right and wrong. Deceit can lead to your destruction. and can lead to the destruction of those that you love and those that you live with or maybe work with. This can happen. The details are different, of course. But the same seeds of sin, they live in all of us. So we have to, as we look into the pages of 1 Samuel chapter 27, we have to be able to see sin and we have to be able to call it a sin, but we also have to be able to look in 1 Samuel chapter 27 and see a mirror that shines upon us and to see in ways that we ignore the warning lights of our own soul. What are ways that we're feasting on the world? What are ways that we are not speaking the truth of God's word in our moment? What are the ways that we're overcome by the lies of this world? What are ways that we're becoming callous to sin and that's leading to a further dead-end destination for us? And we're going further into it and justifying ourselves again and again. This happened to David and it can happen to us even though the details are different. We look at 1 Samuel chapter 27 and and we see once again that the Bible is full of a cast of characters that are rough around the edges and a story that is not neat and nice. And it's a reminder to us once again that our hope is not in David. Our hope is not in Saul. Our hope is not in Solomon. Our hope is not in a Sunday school teacher. Our hope is not in a pastor. Our hope is not in an author. Our hope is not in, you just fill in the blanks. David is not your model to emulate. He is not a model for living. Our hope is in one who faced intense opposition and intense oppression who actually talked to his own soul when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane, where he says in that moment, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But in that moment, he speaks to his own soul. He speaks to his own heart saying, not my will, but thy will be done. So we look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, 27, and we see the horrid nature of sin and the consequences and the effects for actual people. But we lift our gaze beyond David and we look to the one who is perfect, the righteous one who will never let you down. He is our hope. 
Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.